This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. It's August 25th, 2023. I'm Charlie Fink with Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. Roni, we are Tedless today. I know. We're very <laughs> sad. Ted, we miss you. So this is the great thing about having three co-hosts, though. Somebody can drop out and we will still have spirited banter and uh, entertaining color commentary on the week's news, which is not very substantial as we crawl into the last week of August. Every, everybody must be on vacation or something. Yeah, it's got that um, the August slowdown, except for the the fires around the world and the hurricane sitting California. But outside of that, uh, it's been everybody's slow. on vacation. Yeah, everybody yep. who's <laughs> not on fire is on vacation. So we had a great guest today, uh, Anna Rupa Ganguly. She is the CEO and founder of Prisms, uh, a VR system for education, uh, primarily, I believe, math. Uh, we'll learn more about that, but uh, training and simulation uh, continue to be, in my opinion, the killer app of XR, and um, and certainly it's a proven value to uh, comprehension and retention and education. So let's get on to the news, which is, as I said, uh, not too dramatic. NVIDIA announced its results uh, two days ago, uh, and it seems like all that money that's being uh, Invested in different AI startups, including Hugging Face, which just raised another $200 million from Salesforce. All of that $200 million is going to go to NVIDIA. Yeah, I think NVIDIA's figured out the right model for now, <laughs> which is um, uh, startups and big companies buying NVIDIA, NVIDIA servers and NVIDIA chips. It's Jensen's got the AI market dialed in more than anyone else. The hardest part is do people actually want what they're building? Is that going to be a profitable business? But right now, the profitable business is buying NVIDIA. Exactly. Exactly. Well, as with many tech companies, right now, the stock is the product as far as the public is concerned. Uh, they kind of left the game games business behind. I still think they're making chips for uh, gaming PCs. But uh, obviously, the uh, the gold in them, their hills, is, is AI, uh, cloud infrastructure. I'm going to say something really bullish, Charlie, which is the global GDP is well over 100 trillion. The AI transformation of that is infinitesimal still. So is the upside of NVIDIA much, much bigger if there is a significant portion of the economy over the next 10, 20 years that transforms to AI-driven mm. processes? Um, I think Jensen knows that. You know, Maybe he'll be sitting on a $10 trillion company one day. The interesting thing is you would think given the scale of their business and its rapid rapid growth that there would be i don't know intel other companies just you know throwing billions of dollars uh, uh to play catch up it's not that the nvidia chips are in so demand such demand uh, people are killing each other to get orders placed 
Well, first of all, I think Jensen's done. A, I, I know him, so I've just done a couple really brilliant things, and we were partners of theirs uh, uh, at Magic Leap. Still are, I think, in in many levels. One, the sophistication of their architecture is just incredible, uh, and the depth of knowledge of being very early into GPUs for AI is like really pioneering that. And then they built these incredible software layers and developer interfaces that people love. Um, like the one really chasing them on on some levels, AMD. Uh, Lisa Sue's brilliant, and she's built a company worth a couple hundred billion uh, from I think three or four billion in the last decade chasing him. So I think there's a lot of upside. But the, you know, Intel is the big question, right? They're building U.S. factories. Um, I think everyone understands there's going to be this pull out of China, Taiwan on chips, and Intel I think hopes to be the beneficiary, but they're not yet putting on the board the sort of quality and experience and depth in in this field. That, that that the top players want. So I think there's an opportunity for Intel to sort of take the West if they really double down and start chasing him. But um, NVIDIA is really good. I mean, Jensen's incredibly good at what he does. Heart, heart, he's like the LeBron James of chips right now. <laughs> I had a interesting conversation yesterday with uh, Raul Sood and David Raskino, who have started a company called Irreverent Labs. Uh, Irreverent is making an AI system uh, for um, uh, generative AI video. The video is supposedly photorealistic. And uh, as a result, they've raised $45 million. They just let Samsung in between rounds for as a strategic investor. Uh, interesting in itself. Uh, but uh, they're launching a product uh, probably in about six, eight weeks. So a pretty interesting company, pretty ambitious plan. Uh, great, great, um, great founding team, former founding um, executives from Microsoft of Microsoft Ventures. So uh, it, it didn't have any trouble raising money. Uh, one of them is is a uh, specialist in uh, AI and machi machine learning. So uh, I think we're going to be hearing more from Irreverent Labs. Charlie, I think we're going to be seeing an endless parade of companies um, company times AI going after sector X across almost all human conceptual sectors in the economy uh, over the next decade. I think this is just not stopping, right? Because the, the the global economy uh, is over 100 trillion and almost every area is a target. It's it's really intense what's, what's going to be happening here for the next couple of decades. So I'm looking at uh, a wand... Uh, .app AI. Here's a small raise, $4.2 million for an AI startup that's going to take artist drawings and convert it into, um, uh, into a more uh, finished, uh, coherent AI image, uh, which, which seems obvious. And I, for some reason, I thought other companies did this sort of drawing to finished AI or sketch even to finished AI. Uh, rendering, uh, but uh, uh, this one, this round was led by O'Shaughnessy Ventures. They're legit, and uh, so that'll be interesting. It's apparently focusing on take being a tool for people who have some artistic talent, which is, by the way, the people who produce most of the decent AI that I've seen usually are uh, artists, directors, cinematographers, graphic designers. I mean, those those are going to be the people who grab these tools and, and really make things so that we go, wow. 
No, for sure. It, it's yeah. There are a couple of players doing it, but maybe uh, this group's going to do something really nice. You know, one one interesting story this week, Charlie, which is uh, sort of like bubbling in the undercurrent, are the developers popping up at the Apple Vision Pro studios around the world, um, and the first kind of off the record feedback. Some of them are posting. You know, we're not supposed to say anything, but smiley face. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see the waves of people being invited into. You know the the uh, the Apple Vision Pro labs in different parts of the really in different parts of the world Europe US uh, been people been pinging me all week um, so so it looks like there that machine is turning on and the feedback I'm hearing I don't know what you're hearing is actually pretty, very positive I, I read a couple of things one one was negative because l- let's face it if you sit down with a Vision Pro there's not a whole lot to do yet. Right. So so it would be like sitting down with the Magic Leap 1 in November of 2018 and saying, well, there's nothing to do with it. Well, I, you I, know, so you were supposed to be the one who did it. But don't look at me. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you the uh, – I think what's interesting about like this moment in time against the, the early emergence of computing and people can go look at the history. When things like the Apple 1, Apple 2, and Mac came out, you could have said the same thing. But instead of saying that – People just got on with it and wrote cool stuff and traded the software and built the community and created all these amazing ecosystems and games and paint programs and all that. I mean, you got like Mac Paint and Mac Write and a couple other things, but people were so excited, enthusiastic about building. Now, I think there's still a vast community of developers that think that way, but there's a much larger community of lean back users that just want everything hand fed to them, like little baby birds. And I think those people have to be second and it's really the developers that need to own this right yes now. that's correct i think they're going to make four hundred thousand of them and most of them will go to direct developers as yeah. as it should be this is not a consumer device and uh, i think that the fact that that apple has pretended that it is may not be entirely to their benefit and it's confusing um the truth is that this is for developers who are looking you know two years ahead to a mass market uh, and uh, a device that hopefully will will be delivered with lots of applications, sort of the opposite of where they are now. Um, I, first of all, I, I can't wait to try it. Everybody's asking me every time I talk about it, have you tried it? No, Apple has not shown it to me. I'm not a developer, and uh, I'm I'm not on their list of writers to romance. Um, but I like it. Let's rectify that. Hey, I Tim, know. could you please invite Charlie to try the Apple Vision Pro? I know, Pro? Tim. I'm special. He also invited other writers who specialize in extended reality, and that actually was the part that kind of hurt because I was not. Well, okay, I'm not on the list with the information. I'm not on the list with Bloomberg. I got it. I accept that. <laughs> so here's a story uh, that Ted would like, unfortunately. Uh, Sandbox VR, which he has talked about before, <clears throat> and we've had the um, – the CEO on the show. Supposedly, now this is a company that has about 30 locations. They've got celebrity investors uh, in a way, sort of a similar profile to the investors that uh, Walter got for Dreamscape, um, you know, movie studios and, and uh, you know, sports stars and, and other people have invested and they, you know, had to restructure during the pandemic because, you know, not a good time to be in location-based entertainment. But location-based entertainment seems to be making a comeback. And these guys are claiming that um, they've got a title, Deadwood Valley, uh, that has generated $23 million in ticket sales across 30 locations. So I'm just sitting here in my head doing the math. So that's over a million dollars per location. 
Now, they don't say over what time period. So, you know, was that over three years? I think this is a title that's been in their venue for a long time, as opposed to, say, um, the Squid Game, which is new. Uh, so the idea that that there's a an LBE title making, uh, you know, a million dollars in a single location, I don't, you know, the location I saw uh, outside of San Francisco, uh, they basically had two stages, if you will. And, you know, it takes a half an hour for a group to go through a stage or 40 minutes. Uh, so their throughput, you know, it's not built for throughput. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty astonishing number. Also, this is a private company. So of course they could lie their faces off. Apparently lying your face off is no crime. Uh, even, even if you, even if you're high up in government, lying your face off is no crime. So I'm going to say, I like these guys. I want to believe them, but this one is a toughie. I'm not sure. let's, Let's do the math. Let's say we give them that 23 million across 30 locations, sub million dollars per location over let's say it was more than one year is that a profitable business and i think the issue with lbx is very few are profitable it's not clear that meow wolf is profitable as as santa fe meow wolf was profitable but as they tried to scale and make these huge investments i don't know if they've turned over yet and 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 they're they're a great uh they do some great work uh disney you know the best at this is actually having you know challenges in the recovery. There's an article uh, in the last couple of weeks about Disney and what it's like post-pandemic and trying to get the wheels spinning again. And I mean, it's just a very tough business to eke out. I, I don't uh, honestly. I just don't think the math works because of utilization. Most people are busy during the week and during the day. Um, a, as good as they might be at selling corporate parties or uh, corporate training or whatever education, whatever they think they can do with those rooms during periods of low utilization, they will never make up for those periods of low utilization during periods of high utilization because they have limited inventory. Unlike a movie theater, which can sit empty all week, and then they put in, you know, uh, two shows of three hundred people on Saturday night. Boom, the week is saved. I'll tell you what would work, Charlie. Really quick, imagine the Apple Store. And next to it is a Disney, Pixar, Marvel experience lab. You go in there and you get a 20 minute like experience of like, you know, pick your favorite Marvel, Pixar, Disney experience, Star Wars with the Apple Vision Pro. And then the business model is going to go in and buy the Apple Vision Pro. Like that would work, right? Because I think these things as tasters for why you'd want to buy the product, I think, you, and first of all, you'd mob those Apple stores and you'd have like world-class content. I think the issue is that's what people really want. They want like the best thing in in content. They want like a great Star Wars thing. They want a Marvel thing done at incredible level. Uh, and then it's like, do I always have to come back to the mall to do it? Or can I just take this thing home and now I could subscribe to Disney plus yeah. plus plus. I think that's what's going to turn into. I think the LBX for XR will probably be the way Apple, you know, drives, drives a- a- AVPs all over the place or the consumer version one day. I don't think that location-based entertainment is going to go away. I mean, it keeps fighting its way back from, you know, incredible odds. Um, But I think clearly 
entrepreneurs and and also consumers are interested in this but public space vr just it's it's tough because of the throughput requirements that uh, a loca- profitable location has and that's always been disney's problem with vr you can't you know you have to put people inside of a vehicle where sort of 30 people can wear the helmet at the same time if well, you know <laughs> charlie this summer i was somewhere where i saw it working really well so um, there's a there's an amazing theme park called Europa Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rich, Richard Taylor and I went uh, there this summer, and we met with the with the CEO Michael Mack. Uh, we were on his podcast. Uh, so hey, Michael, hey Michael, <laughs> um, and it was uh, shout out to Michael, and it it was brilliant. And they had this amazing VR experience where you fight, and then you go into this like helicopter, and they fly around, and it's but it's part of this big theme park that is profitable. And and people love that experience because it's one of the things you do across a day, and there's a bit of an upsell, and there's so much volume, and you're there to have those experiences. It seems to work really well. So I was very impressed by how well managed and how packed everything was. Um, and you know, this is a the whole thing is a profitable enterprise, right? Where is Europa Park? They're on the border of France and Germany. It, it's I, I think one of it's like the Disneyland of Europe. And in fact, mm-hmm. when you go there. Uh, the the mythology I heard was Walt Disney visited the this park this area uh, across uh, he went across Europe post World War II and took those inspirations back and then made Disneyland mm-hmm. and when I was walking around there I'm like this feels so Disney like but it's the other way around it's like Disney was there and apparently saw the castles and all these things and what's kind of cool about the place is they have a real medieval castle from I think the 1400s. It's not a fake Cinderella. It's like an honest to goodness real castle. Uh, so it was very, it was very interesting the the authenticity of how they do. It. But it was, it was it was like a mirror world of like some alternate universe Disney. But they had an incredible VR experience area that that was doing very well as part of the whole package. So I think there's a way to make this all work. Um. Yeah, I'm just looking at the. Uh... The wiki for Europa Park, trying to figure out when it was open. But you're saying it was opened uh, prior to Disneyland in 1955. Before it became the official Europa Park, um, they, they they had like themed entertainment around the castle. Mm. I think for close to a century, like the guy's great 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 grandfather. Uh, so they'd have like circuses, and people would dress up and do things, and it became like this local. This like local event place, you know, come to the castle and there'd be like knights fighting. And then they kept adding stuff to it. Eventually it became Europa Park. I think what the, I think Michael's father or grandfather made that happen. But like the prior generations, I believe um, they just had this like local community entertainment park, LBX going on that entertained the populace over there. It was Um, really interesting because it felt so Disney-like and you saw some things that were, okay, this is, hundreds of years old and this is 60 years old and did did you know much about it before you showed up or were you just sort of showed up and like oh my god no i was tagging along uh so you know (laughs) richard taylor is the one of the founders of weta and we had gone to a film festival to 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 show a movie and then he's like you're coming to europa park with me because i'd met michael at magic leap and he was an incredible host Uh, you and ted should go there one day it would blow your mind some of the things they've done and the quality level the the finesse of some of the things uh, was just very high end. It was ve- it was very nice to see. I'm just trying to get myself to Salt Lake City to see Kent <laughs> Brechtschneider's place. Yes, uh, everybody everybody around me is leaving for the Venice Film Festival. I feel like such a, a schmuck. Um, 
Okay, so here's a good story. You'll love this story. Uh, paralyzed woman speaks with the help of BCI. Uh, she's actually powering an avatar and making it speak with her brain. Uh, she can also type, but speaking is the real breakthrough because she could speak using this method in like 80 words a minute, like we're talking right now, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, and when you see the video of it, which is um, in in my Forbes column, uh, you know, seeing it is is inspiring. Uh, this woman has a, a rare disease that left her uh, paralyzed and unable to speak for all. I, it's been more than a decade. So she's really a handicapped person uh, and needs round the clock care, which apparently she she's getting good care. But they did a brain implant and they uh, and they have a screw at the top with all of the connectors to the brain sensors inside of her skull. And um it it translates uh, her her brain impulses into words and apparently with tremendous accuracy. So no, no, that's Charlie, an incredible um, breakthrough. No, I, I think I think you know Elon Musk's put a lot of weird pop culture attention on on brain computer interfaces. But first of all, the field's been around for many decades, um, and it's really use cases like this that are the ones that you know really should get all the spotlight. Like you're saying now. It, there's some incredible things to help people who are blind speak again, paralysis, depression, anxiety, OCD, schizophrenia. A number of my friends are running these companies, like the guys at Precision Neuro in Boston doing incredible work. Marone at Intercosmos, who you know. Um, it, there, there's a real interesting revolution coming. Um, and, and Charlie, it's going to be everywhere from like sitting on top of the skull to slightly embedded in the skull to actually being on the brain, on the dura, to being inside the brain. To I call passive brain computer interface like what we were doing at Magic Leap. Like I do think XR is a form of passive BCI in the end, um, and it's it's an interesting thing because I thought of that as the the brain is the inner sanctuary. We need to tread carefully there. Like cases like this where you're helping someone regain function, it's just like such an amazing story. But there's a lot of other people who think BCI is about like becoming some kind of like. X-Men, Avengers. Well, of course, it's it's such a human. big part, such a big part of the Matrix movies that I think right. <laughs> you know, jack your head into the computer. Well, uh, thank thank you, John Gade and Kim Library and the Exactly. The, the, but Lekowski. I this was this is a really inspiring story. I love uh seeing stories like this about tech. It's awesome. So Anna's not here. We'll keep digging into the news because there were Let's a lot of going. little stories this week. Uh, okay, here's one. Deep fake detection from deep media. Not a huge story this week. They have a million dollar something dollar contract with the Air Force Research Lab. Uh, but the idea is to create tools for, uh, quote, rapid and accurate deep fake detection to counter Russian and Chinese information warfare. Uh, I would imagine there's also troll information warfare, which doesn't know any borders, which might be the most dangerous part of uh, deep fakes, which certainly uh, will get mixed up with the 2024 election. So, Charlie, this is like the new red team, blue team, right? You know, in terms of cybersecurity, as soon as you have something like this, then you're going to have the people who are making the deep fakes up their game. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the red, you know, then, then the, the, the defense has to up their game. And it's, it's tricky because we're entering a level of sophistication that a lot of average people don't understand all of this cryptography and image processing, and they just can't comprehend that some of this stuff is absolutely not real. Um, it, it's scary because you have a very easy manipulatable 
mass population, which we see some unsavory politicians and leaders already taking advantage of, and they've been doing it since since the beginning of time, right, with different forms of media. But this is helping them scale uh, malintent in, in all kinds of ways that are really tricky. I, w- I would think this would be a priority of like U.S. cyber defense. You know, there's a there's a cyber command, and I'm I'm guessing that this has got to be one of the top three things they're working on, or you hope it is. Okay, one more story we can do while we're waiting for her. There's a good story this week because the Gartner hype cycle for 2023 came out. Yeah, that's always fun to see XR moving up on the slope of enlightenment and uh, things like Web three foundering at the bottom of the trough of disillusion. Hopefully that uh, idea won't be crawling out of there anytime soon. But we have (laughs) what was interesting is uh, we have generative AI at the peak of inflated expectations. So my question to you, because we were just talking about NVIDIA and Gen AI and how big this potentially is, is Gen AI going to stay there at the peak or or is it going to join Web3 in the trial of dissolution? What do you think? Um, I, let, let, me, let me characterize this way. I think AI, computing intelligence, is not a fad. It, it is going to power through. I would, I would say micro elements of AI, like a particular form of Gen AI, might go through an up and down, but the field, the sector of AI and the general idea of generative AI is just going to keep powering through. That this the speed of improvements is just unbelievable what's happening right now. We're like a double power curve. This thing is not going to slow down and the amount of money and people behind it. And it's real, right? Okay, it's real so stuff. So using my uh uh hat as a pastist, not a futurist, <laughs> in the past. Everybody has said about the Gardner hype cycle, um, this time it's going to be different. Yeah, I know that, you know, XR and the metaverse and Web3 and all that ended up in the trial of disillusion, but that's not going to happen this time with AI. Uh, I will say this, Charlie, a lot of companies will end up failing and in the dustbin, but the field will not, right? So I think one of the, maybe if you're, if we're... There's so many AI companies that have received too much money so fast, making things that are not going to make it, not because the sector's bad, because those companies have the wrong idea, the wrong business model, the wrong teams, can't execute. So, you know, we might be looking at 90 to 95% of those companies not making it. So that 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 becomes the Gartner trough of disillusionment, but I don't think it's an indictment of the field because the best ideas, best teams will execute and soar across that valley. It's like the internet, right? I mean, it's like the inter- was the internet a fad idea? No, but there was like a hundreds and thousands of companies that were just not built properly that ended up in the dustbin. And then the Googles and, you know, the Facebooks and other Amazons, they powered through. I'm getting messages from them. So from Google and Amazon and Facebook? No, from Anna Rupa and her ah, okay. uh, press person. So uh, hopefully we will see her show up here. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Hi, Anna Ruba. Great to see you and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Have you met my uh, podcast co-host, Roni Abovitz? Hey, good to meet you. Good to to meet you as well. Where are you all located? I'm in LA. I'm in the metaverse. (laughs) <laughs> so and Ted and Ted is apparently in outer space because he's not with us today. Um, we'll we'll see him next week. He's uh, having a complicated uh, summer with uh, his health and his family, but uh, he's on the mend and be back next week. So, um, but I'm, it's great that you're here, and I've been 
interested in hearing more about prisms ever since I first wrote about it, I don't know, six months ago when I think you guys got your uh, uh, most recent round of financing. Uh, but needless to say, the mission of the company is one that we talk about on this show a lot, which is the ability of extended reality and, and VR uh, to impact uh, education. So it, it sounds like that is uh, X marks the spot for prisms. Yeah, it's our entire reason to exist. And uh, when did you launch prisms? So she was started about three years ago in, in 2020. Uh, though though uh, it's been incubating for for quite some time, uh, you know, just just jumping in, Charlie, it would be great to share a quick quick overview please, of what this to, to establish us. Um, so Prism started uh, in my mind, you know, actually quite some time ago um, when I was in college. So I studied electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and saw massive drop offs of of many student groups, particularly women. And it began my lifelong inquiry into what is happening at the K-12 math and science level that causes egregious drop-offs for certain communities over others. And to better understand this, I became a teacher. I taught high school math and uh, science, particularly physics in the Boston Public Schools, which, which was a, a great opportunity to, to teach both disciplines from the get-go. I never saw the pedagogy or the learning design that governs each as, as disparate. Um, and as I uh, went on a quest to really bring great teaching and learning across schools when I left my classroom, I became the director of math for Boston and then did very similar work in New York. And what I began to find um, as a classroom teacher and then leading thousands and thousands of teachers across some of our most challenged districts is that we don't have the learning tools to close the gaps that I got into this work to close. And the reason I came to that level of conviction is because of what I began to learn through my research. I began to find that the top indicators of success are those that we do not develop in our children. So the top indicators in post-secondary STEM are your ability to think spatially. It's the number one indicator. And in top five is your ability to abstract up from your physical life and your physical human experiences. So abstraction in the modern math classroom is, is very defined in a very limited manner. Can kids stare at word problems? draw diagrams, create, draw visualizations, create charts, create tables, and create equations. But those are all 2D representations, um, and our world is 3D, as you well know. So that was the genesis of PRISMS, is how do we build a learning methodology and platform that scales our children's ability to work and think spatially and go through everyday human experiences before ascribe lang ascribe, ascribing language notation and building mathematical models from physicality. Uh, okay. Well, I think I followed. That's awesome. About <laughs> um, I followed a little bit of that. So first of all, yeah. let's talk about what age are the learners that we're targeting? So we look at grades 12, uh, sorry, grades seven to 11 math and science. And what is the user experience that, um, helps them uh, absorb the content. So I can take you through a sample experience so that Great. you can exactly what it looks like. So you put your VR headset on, and this was the first module I ever built because we were, we were born during the pandemic, and kids are in a food hall. And they're buying their food, they're taking the environment, they're just hanging out, and there's a mayor's announcement. And she says, there's an alarming growth rate of a virus, stay safe. And the students don't really know what to do with that. They say, okay. And they get the power on their watch to go back in time and see those behaviors that were playing out when they were ostensibly unaware. How was the virus spreading? 
So they, they said, oh, I had heard her sneeze. I didn't know there was transmission. I saw her friend walk back. Another four people could have gotten it. So it's a physical understanding of multiplicative growth, not an intellectual one. We haven't used the word equation, function, form, nothing. Students just saw one person spread something to five people. They then accept a mission. How many weeks until the hospitals in your community are going to reach capacity? And it's through that challenge or through that mission, students then begin to connect that physical understanding to 3D simulations, which is a one layer of abstraction up. They then connect that to tactile data visualizations where they can see that exponential form for the first time. And when they see those groups of five, they begin to make a lot of connections because they had seen that cashier spread it to five people. So go, I've seen that, that number before. Those numbers have a very physical uh, contextual uh, meaning. They then begin to collect all that into 2D charts and tables. And mind you, this is all in VR. We don't take the children out. So they have that experience. They're using simulations data visualizations, the, the charts and tables. And then finally, when they begin to create their equations, which is the 1D representation, it's going from the 3D, 2D to the 1D, they can see where that Y is equal to five for the T kind of just pops out of their experiences because they saw the five, five times five, five times five times five in their data visualization, in their simulations, in their, in their food hall. So really kind of going up from the physical layer all the way up to notation. Now, when we first built that when, and we put it out to our schools and districts, what we fast discerned is that's all of secondary math and science, concrete to abstract, which is why we rapidly were able to begin to build out all of algebra, all of middle school math, all of bio, all of chem, because it's the same pedagogical design. Anurpa, what's really interesting about what you're saying, um, when, we were, when we were developing the, the Magically platform, we were thinking a lot about this, like the the, the human brain is, um, it's it's spatial, right? I think it's 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 artificial for us to, like, you know, learn in this two dimensional way. Um, although there's really amazing abstract thinking from like reading a book and then unraveling it in your own mind, but we really evolved to be spatial beings, right? And and I think a lot of students who are incredibly intelligent may not connect with the 2D learning and the 2D abstraction of like math and physics, like you're saying. So we, we thought it was a very promising uh, area. So it's really exciting to see what you're doing. But I wonder, have you gone into the neuroscience, uh, you know, as sort of backing, like this actually should be education. Education should be largely spatial. And maybe the secondary part of education is the sort of abstracted 2D, because our brain seems to be well suited for spatial education more than anything else. Exactly. And all the research has has uh, supported this. So when I said, you know, the top indicator of success is spatial thinking and spatial reasoning. I mean, that that tells us everything that we need to know. And the the you know, there are a lot of um, adjacencies to that. So embodied cognition is a big area of research on how do we use movements and what's the correlation between certain kinesthetic behaviors and mathematical thinking. And so, for example, our children when they learn linear functions and prisms, they don't learn y is equal to mx plus b. With their 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 modeling the melting rate of a glacier um, in in an effort to determine when is Miami going to have a flood risk that could be severe enough to impact the residences and the business and the businesses on their shoreline. And as they begin to model the glacier, they first are catching water droplets. So this this big glacier is like melting. One of them is melting very quickly, and your hands moving like this, and you mm -hmm. see the distance going up really quickly. Then the one that's, that's melting more slowly is moving like this and it's going down more slowly. And then you use simulation you use simulation tools to then begin to create a linear function. But instead of being given an equation, you do it with your body. 
So you have a starting value and this, it went down two meters, two meters, two meters. So now linear function is a starting value and my, my hand going down the same amount each time rather than y is equal to mx plus b. And guess what? When we do that, when the, when the students then connect it to the formal notation, it's, it's almost immediate because the associations that they have are twofold. The contextual, the real world problem that makes it relevant and makes them the why we're emotional beings more than anything else. And if you don't know why you're learning what you're learning, it's just not going to be a sticky. And then the movement and the, the kinesthetic awareness um, is a big part of retention as well. So qu question for you, do you see PRISMs becoming like a, a virtual school? Um, or is it the is it the virtual books that physical schools will use, or do you see it eventually? I just I'm at home. I put something on, and now I'm in my school. My whole school curriculum is this like nonlinear spatial education thing. I mean, how, how, where where do you see all this going? Yeah, so I believe deeply in co-location, and I believe deeply in the social bonds um, of of building a school community, building a building a school like. In my in my classroom, my kids used to sweep the floors like this is a shared space. We love each other. We take care of each other. Mm -hmm. So what the way that prisons is blossoming in our school systems is it is a core part of their instructional toolkit. And so every single unit of study right now begins with prisons where kids get to learn quadratics, learn exponentials for the first time in VR. It gives them the anchor of why they're learning it and it physically derives the idea. And then all the other things that they do in the rest of their curriculum, some of the paper pencil work, web-based activities, they just go so more, so much more quickly because they 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 got such a strong conceptual understanding. Now, to your point around just volume, how much VR? Right now, we're finding that that one VR experience has been magical and transformative. We are building up more and more and more content, uh, which is forcing our districts to reduce the student to uh, headset ratio. Right now, our school systems purchase at t a 10 to 1 ratio to 10 students can share one device, um, primarily because about five teachers share one class set of devices. So teacher one use it Monday, Tuesday, teacher two use it Wednesday, Thursday, and there's a lot of sharing. It's kind of, I taught during the laptop cart revolution, and that's what we were doing to share one card of laptops. Um, and then we became one-to-one. -one. So I, I, I see the same thing happening with VR in the next four to five years, max, um, given how we are seeing teachers and kids jumping into this. And the only other thought that, um, that, that, that I wanted to share is the reason I say co-location is because an instructional episode is 50 minutes and the kids aren't in VR for that entire 50 minutes. What, is, what are they doing the rest of the time? They're talking to each other. So the way it's a discourse framework, the way that PRISMS has been designed is a teacher will launch a conversation. Has anybody ever experienced a flood? Hands go up. They're talking to each other. They're doing think pair shares. And they're like, Go grab your headsets. We're going to learn more about what causes these. You're going to have 25 minutes. In 25 minutes, they go through the experience. They do the modeling. Headsets come down the last 12 minutes of instruction. And the teacher is constructing a high-quality conversation with everyone to converge on the key mathematical notation conventions and notation uh, and, and um, terminology. So it's all to say that it's very much been designed. And that's why we're getting the adoption that we are. Um, we have... Our, our schools see what we've built and they're adopting within 30 to 60 to 90 days often, which is unheard of in K-12 adoption because it's weird. We've baked it into the schooling infrastructure. Quick, quick question. Why, why VR, not AR? Because the AR in theory would facilitate the continuous social interaction and seeing each other while you could still do all those things. Is it, is it cost and just availability of like, you know, low cost Oculuses or what, what's, what's the driver on that? 
I think that that was that that's one piece of it. Uh, it, it it's just the evolution of, of device and cost. Uh, I think the the primary thing, though, is the immersion into the into the real world problem is an extremely important part of how prisons is designed. We have to get kids leaving the four walls of the classroom to the seat of problems. So we take them to India to build new um, elementary schools. We take them to um, Baltimore to a big water water treatment plant uh, to neutralize their chemically contaminated water. We take them to the seat of problems. And one of the things that I often say is we're, we're going to stop asking our students, what do you want to be? We have to start asking them, what problems do you want to solve? And in order for them to fall in love with problems and build real passion for problems, they must go to where they're endemic. And so we're constantly taking them to different countries, different locations, different spaces, different vocations. And one thing we haven't talked about is every single module is led by a character um, who has a real has a job. So an urban designer, a rural architect, a molecular biologist, um, someone over, uh, overseeing the health of our coral ecosystems. So you are not just learning about that real world problem. You are learning about that real world problem through the prism of vocations and people in the world today who are actively solving that problem. Oh, that's awesome. But one last question from me and then Charlie, uh, really quick. What's the investor community support around you? Are they buying into it? Do you feel like there's frothiness or is it very difficult to find to find people? I think that we've had a really robust um, business model from the get-go. Uh, we were we were making money from our first year, and that's important because it was it was it was valuable for me to have a very clear value proposition and make sure the market was entirely bought in before I continued to build. And because that we we identified a very clear problem, a very clear solution. I come from the market. I sat in the seat of my customer for years and years and years. So, you know, given given that ecosystem, we've had a lot of support from investors. That's awesome. I, I do have a, a few sort of practical questions. So the company was founded in 2020. How big are you now? Uh, we're, it's funny you ask, we're, we're, we're hiring people every day. Uh, right now, uh, Charlie, we are 32. And you're based in Boston still? We were always so we. I started in Brooklyn, but uh, we. I moved to San. We, I moved the headquarters to San Francisco two years ago. So product and operations are in San Francisco. Product and operations San Francisco, um, and then all of our customer success and sales teams are regional because we're in thirty six states across the U.S. Wow, thirty six states. So how many uh, schools is that? Uh, so we sell to school districts. School oh, so how many school districts? Yeah. Uh, we'll be launching with 196 school districts and 200,000 kids um, just after after about 18 months of going since going to market. So, what are school districts doing with VR? Are they putting the buying you know 10 Quest headsets and putting them on a cart, or uh, how how does that happen inside of a a school? Yeah. So, our when a school system signs on, they sign on um, with we're going to do it across these 10 schools, these 20 schools. And every school gets one to two to three class sets based on how many students they want to serve at that school. And those, let's say, let's say, let's say a school gets two class sets. The science department shares that the first one, and the math department shares the other. And so all headsets are school based. We don't move them around. So today. these are quests, right? We are mainly deployed on the Pico Neo three and the because because it doesn't have to be tethered to a personal smartphone. 
Well, the good thing about the Quest 2 is we are, we have been able to put our MDM on Picos and Quests alike. So we're able to put them in kiosk mode, entirely manage them. That's, that, that is, um, school sales is predicated on full management of devices. Right. So we, yeah, have, of course. we have our MDM on our Quest and our Picos. So in order to update the headsets with new content, they just sort of plug them in and call? Yeah, they just literally we we, we uh, on our MDM platform will push the, the 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 new APK, and all they need to do is to have their headsets turned on, and it'll update. Now, school Wi-Fi is not always the friendliest, so we've had to release um, with our partners wired uh, a wired um, offline solution. Uh, we're looking into other uh, more more efficient methods because it's not reasonable to tell a teacher to update um, you know hundreds of headsets that are getting stuck on the the school Wi-Fi. And you said you had, we were talking before about modules for math and science. Um, how many are there and, and can you describe the different ones? Yeah. So we're across grades seven, eight, uh, math, algebra one, a geometry, algebra two. So those are the five courses that we have for math. And then in, bio, in uh, science, we have uh, ninth grade biology, 10th grade chemistry. We are currently uh, working on uh, 11th grade physics and then middle school life sciences and physical sciences. Uh, we're roughly, we're, we're, I think we're right now in the world of, oh no, sorry, I don't know what happened soon. Right now we have about 50, 50, 55 uh, learning modules. They're all very hefty because they're, each of them are on a core concept. So any one course has somewhere between, um, I would say six to nine modules per subject area. And so a, one, a single teacher is only going to be using the, the, the devices, these nine moments. And when she uses them, they each take about two to three days in the, in, in, in the unit. Great. So it sort of becomes something that punctuates the regular lesson plans. Well, I would even go as far to say it's, it, it's the thing that drives it. Because teachers use prisms to teach, not to review, not to apply. We don't say, let's like learn it in our ways. And then we'll do VR at the end. It's fun. It's not a period or an exclamation or a, it's the beginning. You're going to learn it the right way. Uh, uh, the way that you, you guys were both talking about it is this is the right way to learn. So you're going to learn it the right way from the get-go. And then we're going to use these other tools that are better for solidification, speed, efficiency, but not for learning. And how hard is it to make new modules? It sounds like you have a long list of them. Do you have uh, 50 developers? How, how, what is the process of creating and deploying a module? We definitely don't have 50 developers. <laughs> uh, I, I've, you know, as the, as the lead educator, um, I, I, I work with um, a couple content developers to write very meticulous learning designs, scripts. We've, we've scaled our content dev incredibly so right now development isn't the isn't the bottleneck it's content um and i'm right now i've been on i've been on the, on a sales tour I'm, I'm very customer facing right now and i need to get back get my myself back to san francisco uh to really focus focus on content dev but yes we've pretty much gotten it down to a science we build very very quickly and that and, and the reason why that's important charlie is we're being very responsive to our schools schools do not have time this whole idea of teacher authoring it's it's a, it's a pipe dream it, anybody who says that they haven't actually been a teacher it takes <laughs> teachers don't have time 
And that's why that's why the whole curriculum industry exists, right? And so what we do is whenever teachers have a request, we want a module on similar incongruence. We want to we I immediately sit down, I write it, and and we were able to release it in three to four weeks. And that sort of responsiveness is what's really drawn school systems to us. They almost see us as their engineering team. That's amazing. Um, so in terms of growth. Is growth being driven by you reaching out with your, you and your sales team reaching out with success stories? Are schools hearing about it from each other? Do you go to conferences? What's, what is the way that you sort of built up your pipeline and, and continue to replenish it? All three of those. So we do a lot of, for all of our, you know, strategics and lighthouse districts. Those are, those are ones you reach out straight to the board and superintendent and, and those are executive meetings. Um, we have a lot of districts that are, that hear about one another. So Texas is a good example. We, we're really taking storm across the state and they're, they're very regional. Texas is broken up into regions. And when, you know, when um, one district falls, the other one falls, the other one falls. And we're seeing that domino effect particularly in in some of these larger larger markets and then i would say conferences conferences are fine I, I i think that's more about just you know making sure the teacher community and folks are aware and there's exposure but i wouldn't say the the predominance of our sales come from conferences there is a big one big ed tech conference i think um it's yeah exactly yeah yeah we were there last year and it was again great to share share what we're building and make sure that everyone realizes that you know we are the leader in vr education we have a very very um, disciplined theory of action, both from the perspective of content development pedagogy, but also from implementation. My team is full of folks who are teachers and district leaders. We know how to implement in the classroom. We know how to operationalize technology, and we know how to deliver learning outcomes. Because if you don't deliver student growth, the board th that year after or the year after, you know, you're you're building a, a house of cards because you're getting people in with excitement and the promise of pedagogical effectiveness and excellence. But if you don't see your algebra one numbers going up, your grade seven numbers going up, um, you know, VR will continue to be seen as that cool, fun toy versus a must have in your curriculum. I just got to make a comment. I'm thinking about all this great work you're doing and the $15 billion plus per year that Meta and you're using Meta devices spends on God knows what, spraying it in all directions and how a small fraction of that could single-handedly change all of the education issues in the United States. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just looking at like the people that have endless capital, the people who are really doing amazing things with the technology they believe in, and why why are they not connecting? Right. Uh, I think about all the crazy things they've spent billions of dollars on, um, and just like the crumbs off that table. You know, I'm thinking about you powered by just the crumbs off the table. What good that would do in the United States mm -hmm. and around the world. So I don't know if you've ever met Mark, but like if he's listening, they should connect <laughs> with you and, and scale what you're doing. I mean, they could overnight, they could do what you're doing and make it something that happens in every school district mm -hmm. and then scale it globally and get it right. It's it's confounding to me why people with the the infinite capital power to actually change the world, you're doing the good things and struggling to do it. And then you've got people that actually have all the resource to just snap their fingers and and give you the help. So I don't know, maybe he'll hear this. Well, it's funny that you say that. So Meta has been a partner from they 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 did they, they you know were able to support us with some donated devices early on. They supported content development early on. It was a, a very you know initial partnership. Um, I could not agree with you more. Right now, I could we could snap our fingers and be in every single district in the US because I've built the content, I've built the teacher training model, 
I'm upskilling hundreds and hundreds of teachers daily. The reason why I'm on the road all the time is we are we are we are running teacher institutes on how do you teach problem-based learning with VR. And you have to understand, I'm in core. I'm in core math. I'm in core science. What does that mean? It's not a fringe. Like after school, field trips, you know, this, I'm not doing that. I went after algebra one, grade seven, biology, and we're a part of the core curriculum now. And so this is something that um, I will say, this is like our investors, you know, A16Z, like we do have a lot of great people behind us that do get it and have seen the kind of like growth that, that we've been experiencing have been supporting our work. So it's just a matter of continue to share the, the 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 voices of our customers. I'll be putting out a video really soon. I don't think people realize how ready education is for VR. I mean, the number of people who I keep hearing silly words like the future, and said it's not the future, it's happening right now in our largest school systems, prisons. We're in 196 of our largest school systems in the US. And that was with me and two other AEs that just started a few months ago. I'm just going to rant one more second. Think about the tens of billions people like Elon Musk are burning so that he could send fart jokes on social media. And a droplet of that, what that could do in, in someone like your hands in transforming education globally and actually doing something really good with technology. Hopefully some of those folks are listening because I, I feel like purpose-based um, companies like what you're doing are actually one of the things that are underinvested in in tech. And too much tech investing is then just utter nonsense and like trying to convince people to buy things they don't need. Um, whereas you're actually doing something amazing. Like you are delivering, I think, one of the real promises of XR, right? And and but there's not a megaphone on that. Hopefully, our little tiny megaphone helps. But <laughs> um, you know, the universe is not fair because if it was, you 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 would have access to the kind of resources that could scale it. The federal government should be supporting you. This is the kind of thing that's a no-brainer. You know, and and basically sending fart jokes on on Twitter and rebranding it X is just stupid. But what you're doing is actually important. So, uh, one of one of the places that I teach in Arupa is uh, Arizona State University, and they've been doing a lot with XR mm -hmm. and education. Uh, I wonder if you've come across their work or uh, uh, or them in this market. So I, I had the opportunity to experience Dreamscape and and some of the other uh, stuff that they've been uh, supporting. I think it's you know it, it's all great. What we do is so different. Um, when I looked at Dreamscape, it, it seems like it was more on kind of a Hollywood folks, like people who never who had not spent a lot of time in the classroom. I think our methodologies are a little bit different. Um, and so I I would love to kind of be stay connected and uh, and and collaborate with with the right folks who can elevate our work. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think they're um approach is uh is to sort of set up computer labs as opposed to put headsets on on carts mm -hmm. um obviously both things have their place but the headsets on carts obviously is is you you can get to much larger scale you don't need to build a learning center uh you know you just need need you know uh, a dozen headsets on a cart um it it does seem like you know, just having worked in situations where there's a dozen or two dozen headsets on a cart, it does seem like the uh, management of atoms uh, can probably be a lot harder and more complex than actually creating learning modules and um, getting the headsets on the students. Uh, you know, once they're already in the headset is sort of the easy part. Right. Because just of the logistics people, I mean, they have to be charged. I just, you know, 
it's one of those things like when you take out a piece of consumer electronics, uh, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is is that a challenge for you? Is that an mm-hmm. issue? How do you deal with that? It is. I mean, we had to custom build um, our own charging station. So we have charging units, they lock, they roll. Um, we have to give a lot of guidance to our teachers around making sure everything's charged. Like, how do you put them back in uh, cleaning? I will say because the value prop of what we've built is so strong, teachers and schools and kids are willing to take that friction and 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 take that on because math education has been so ineffective for so long. And now, like uh, we we did a recent study with West Ed um, that showed an eleven percent. It was a randomized control trial that showed an eleven percent increase on algebra one test scores. So yes, there's a little bit of like a logistical issue and a little bit of the cleaning and charging, but that is an outcome that districts are not being able to replicate with anything else. So they're going to take on those those operational difficulties. So as we're coming up on the hour and the end of our conversation, I um, I find myself wondering how fast can you get this done, right? How quickly can yeah. you scale this? Because so much of it is sort of hands-on, talking to people. You know, it's not an electronic program you can distribute to a million people at the same time with a press of a button, right? There's a lot of... Um, you know, there's a lot of people involved. So, so how quickly and how big can you get this? Do you think? Wildest dreams, bring them on. Yeah. I mean, our goal is in the next few years to be in every single public public school in the U S and the reason why we're going to be successful is because this movement is being led by teachers. So teachers are going and talking to their teachers, district superintendents are calling up their friends. I don't want to kind of call out any particular districts here, but it is growing like rapid fire because the customers are leading it. And we're getting now outreach from the largest school systems. Um, there is still a lot of uh, SR3 money left, which was the COVID relief funds. Um, there was about $190 billion that was pumped into schools uh, that where the, and those will expire January 2024, I believe. Mm-hmm. I now forget it's 2024. So you anticipate having a very busy fall. We have a very <laughs> fall. We are. And I think what you're getting at is, look, we have a team that's on the road every day right now, willing this into existence. We're in classrooms every single day with teachers modeling, building capacity, showing them how to do it. It is not going to be, here's this headset, here are these 20 headsets with an app on it, go play, let's have let's have, let's have a Discord channel, let's all tweet about it. That's not what this is, what this is. This is a change manage, management operation of our public institutions, and it takes serious work. And I think that like that's why this is going to be enduring. That's why Prisms is not going to be a fad in VR. Because we are baked into the how um, of the how teachers and leaders work. I'm excited about the idea. Awesome. Of you, you get these headsets into the classroom, and and now and once they're there, you can start to do all sorts of things that aren't even necessarily having to do with math education, right? Because you know the great ability of of VR to take people to other places. It has you know all sorts of applications and history and you know social science and um, other aspects of technology. And uh, so it it would be great if you succeed. I think there will be a lot of um, a lot of people will want to piggyback on the infrastructure you're creating to address other subjects, too. So, um, you know, this is this is what we've all been waiting for. This is why I was so excited to have you on the show. I think education is probably something we don't talk about enough 
on the show because I do think that is one of the key applications for this technology and its ability to democratize education, the ability to bring the best teachers, the best lessons, the best methods to students all over the world uh, is, is so exciting and so tremendously difficult. You know, sort of everybody looks at it and says, oh, that's obvious. We should do that. But really, from a practical standpoint, it's hard. Yeah, and it, because because social change, getting getting people's hearts and minds to change is is typically hard. And I think that what we're finding is that when I share what we're doing, it's a no brainer in terms mm -hmm. of everyone opts in. But then to train the teachers again, how to do problem based learning, how to direct the learning, how to make sure that it's uh, translating to test scores, because we can say what we will. But today, future opportunity for our students is still connected to, to standardized tests. So we can't renege on that. And I think that's one of the things I was just going to quickly react to, Charlie. I know I know we're, we're up, up against time now. But um, the reason why I'm starting with those core math, the core science, I will be releasing language arts and social sciences. We've been getting a lot of requests is because we don't want it to be a nice to have, kind of yeah. going back to what I said before. And when, when you had those apps that were like, oh, cool, look at this, play around with this go to mars go to this it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't taking off even right. though it is really cool and it is really fun um because public schools are uh just no, so i think great. i think you're so smart to start with something that is easily quantifiable yeah so that you don't have to sell vr you just have to say here is the before number here is the after number would you like to continue with this after number or go back to the way you did it before Indeed. So, uh, so that'll Indeed. be uh, you're 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 creating the ladder up which uh, all of VR hopefully will climb after your uh, science and math modules. So, uh, congrats on your success, and um, wish you continued success. Hopefully, you'll come back next year and share your progress with us. And fight thank the good so fight. Thank thank you so much for uh, for um, taking time to really understand the soul of what we're trying to achieve and elevating elevating our voice. I think the last thing that I would say here is that. I have been in education reform for a while, and we are on the cusp of a massive transformation around how our students and teachers experience their learning. Um, our generation is so lucky that we got to witness and see it. The last three waves of EdTech did not. We digitized what we were, what the traditional models versus fundamentally transformed. And I think we have the opportunity to do that. So we all must put our heads together and do it. That's a great place to end our show. Thank you uh, for listening, everybody. Roni and Arupa, have a great weekend, and we'll see everybody back here next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye.